0: Hi, I'm Eric Chaffin, senior pastor of Beach Street First Baptist Church in Texarkana. Welcome to The Upward Call, our weekly Beach Street message cast. If this is your first time to connect with us, we invite you to discover more at www.beachstreetfbc.org. Beachstreetfbc.org. Thanks so much for joining us. We pray that today's message will inspire and challenge you as God speaks to you through His Word. We're in Psalm 92 today. Psalm chapter 92, part three of our series called You, Not Me, The Heart of Worship. You'll recall in uh, message number one, I long for you, we discovered how worship is a way to express our heartfelt longing for God. And then in part two, we talked about how prayer is a vital part of our worship. But then today in part three in our series, we turn our attention to the the celebratory response that we feel towards God, celebration of who He is, celebration of what He has done for us. Now, most of your uh, modern translations will describe Psalm 92 as a is a song for the sabbath day now we know the sabbath was a day reserved for rest and for worship god's people spent the sabbath reflecting on him as creator and redeemer in fact in the culture of that day the sabbath day always included public worship as the community would gather together to sing and to pray and to read scripture and and to praise god now, as you study Psalm 92, you realize that the big idea, really the, the whole psalm in a nutshell can be summed up like this. The Lord is worthy of praise. He will defeat his enemies and empower the righteous. Now, we're going to break this down into three major thoughts this morning. Surprise, surprise. When have I, when have I ever preached a sermon that wasn't three major you know, typical Baptist preacher, he just does the whole three points in a poem thing. Usually I skip the poem, but we'll see. Three major thoughts about the way we celebrate God. Three, three pegs to hang your hats on this morning. All right, here's the first one. We rejoice in God's faithful love. We rejoice in God's faithful love. Look at verse one with me, if you would. It is good. TO GIVE THANKS TO THE LORD, TO SING PRAISE TO YOUR NAME, MOST HIGH, TO DECLARE YOUR FAITHFUL LOVE IN THE MORNING AND YOUR FAITHFULNESS AT NIGHT, WITH THE TEN-STRINGED HARP AND THE MUSIC OF A lyre, FOR YOU HAVE MADE ME REJOICE, LORD, BY WHAT YOU HAVE DONE. I WILL SHOUT FOR JOY BECAUSE OF THE WORKS OF YOUR HANDS. SO HERE IN VERSE 1, THE PSALMIST DECLARES, IT IS GOOD to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praise to your name. That Hebrew term for good, the word is tobe. It means something that's pleasant or or beneficial or appropriate. And of course, to to sing praise literally means to to make music. That having been said, I think it's interesting that in his book, The Shape of Faith to Come, Brad Wagner observed that 30% of worshipers focus very little or not at all during the singing portion of worship services. And that nearly half, almost 50%, often just go through the motions of worship. Well, that raises an interesting question. You know, if worship is so good, you know, if it is uh, beneficial to us, if it is pleasant, appropriate, why do so many people view it as drudgery. I mean, the psalmist says, you know, it's beneficial to be praising and, and singing to God. And we know that celebratory worship includes music, right? Well, the psalmist mentioned singing praise to God's name and the use of the, the ten-stringed harp and the lyre, both stringed instruments. Why does he say this? Because music has the power to stir our hearts in a way that releases our gratitude to the Lord for who he is, for what he does. Music can empower vibrant worship. Now, you want to know why worship doesn't seem to be beneficial for some people? I think it's because they demand that it be done according to their terms. In fact, I suspect that, that much of that 30% of folks who don't really focus on God during the music portion of the service, or that, that 50% who are just kind of going through the motions when it comes to singing praises to God, this is my opinion, but I think they do it because they're spoiled. Yes, you know, so we, we've gotten so spoiled by this whole this whole Burger King, have it your way method of doing worship. You know, for the last four decades, the the whole uh, seeker-friendly, uh, attractional church model has said, "Hey, give them what they want. Come for your worship experience. What? Wor- worship service? Worship service? Service to God? What's no? I'm I'm coming for the worship y'all." It's created a culture of consumer Christianity. I mean, even to the point that people think if they don't get the music that they want, they think they can't worship. Uh, It takes me back to my first pastorate, Broadview Baptist Church in Lubbock, Texas. We brought in a band one Sunday to lead worship. Oh, my. Get this, y'all they even brought drums into the sanctuary. (sighs) Yeah, it's funny. Afterward, our church organist said, well, I didn't get a thing out of that. And of course, I'm thinking, what did you put into it? Sorry, pastor, but that music, just not feeling it. You know, to to a young woman who said that a worship service didn't feel particularly worshipful to her. One pastor replied, my dear, worship is not a glandular condition. Now, I'm going to get all up in your business here for a minute, okay? So just brace yourselves. Last summer, our church voted to go from two separate services, one traditional, one contemporary, to one united service in a blended musical format. And I suspect there's a few of you who may have been grumpy about that ever since. (laughs) This is where I would remind you, church, remember who worship is for. It's for him, not us. Church is not about the music attracting people, it's about the gospel transforming people. Now, I'm not sure that every churchgoer gets that, and I'm not talking about you specifically, I'm talking about all churchgoers in America. Oh, but, but pastor, doesn't, doesn't our music need to be more culturally relevant? I don't know. A.W. Tozer once said, worship is no longer worship when it reflects the culture around us more than the Christ within us. You see, seekers Those people that we're trying to reach, seekers aren't necessarily wanting a certain style of music to tickle their ears. They're hungering for something authentic to fill their hearts. That's what they're looking for. Some people think, well, then how do we get them in the door? You want to know how to grow your church with ease? I'm going to tell you how to grow this church with ease. E-A-S-E. E. Everyone ask someone every day. That's how you grow your church with ease. You know, it's, it's not about all the fancy programs or the wonderful music or, or how good the, the pastor's teaching is. It's about us going out there and investing in people's lives and bringing them. I mean, we can put together a wonderful product. That doesn't mean people are going to show up on our doorstep and say, hey, can you tell me how I can know Jesus. Now, you're going, to get, you're going to get some of those. You really want to fill these seats on a memorial weekend Sunday? Let's go out and get them. Don't expect that the music is going to be what brings them in. But again, I don't know if everybody gets that. I see a lot of Christians who refuse to worship God on his terms and demand that it only be done on their terms. Give me more organ, nope, give me more drums. No, uh, give me more old songs. No, I want more new songs. Give me more Matt Redmond or Chris Tomlin. No, I want more Fanny Crosby hymns. more elevation worship, nope, more Gather songs. well, I don't like this. I don't like that. I can't worship to this now don't deny that there' are probably a handful of you who've actually thought this, okay. Some of you have probably even been brazen enough to say as much. Yes, we read your emails and your social media rants, so I know that's true. (laughs) Guess what, church? Worship is not about what you like, it's about who we love. Well, I won't sing in the choir unless we rehearse on Wednesdays. Well, I'm only going to sing in the choir if you do more specials. Well, I'll worship him more wholeheartedly if you'll just bring back the contemporary service. Well, I don't like the way they're doing things, so I'm just going to withhold my tithe. Or if they don't select the songs that I want, I'm just going to go home after Sunday school. Well, more power to you. Folks, God's not interested in our terms and conditions, okay? He's not interested in our threats. He's interested in our obedient worship. That's what we were created for. Worship is our obedient response to his revealed nature, his revealed character. So my counsel to you, church, is pretty simple. You've heard me say it before. I'm going to say it again. Praise Him when you feel like it. Praise Him when you don't feel like it. Praise Him until you feel like it, regardless of the style of music, okay? Now now that I've gotten all up in your business and I've kind of poked a big hornet's nest and made a couple of folks want to slit my tires, you might uh, want to just take a deep breath, okay? One of you two might even need to uh, take a nitroglycerin pill BUT THE REALITY IS, WE DON'T CELEBRATE GOD BECAUSE WE FEEL LIKE IT. WE CELEBRATE GOD BECAUSE HE IS WORTHY, PERIOD. BUT HERE'S THE REALLY COOL THING. WHILE WE DON'T WORSHIP HIM SOLELY FOR THE PURPOSE OF FEELING GOOD, WE VERY OFTEN DO BENEFIT WHEN WE WORSHIP HIM FREELY when we do choose to worship him honestly on his terms, you see, there's a natural byproduct of that. We get blessed. That's why the psalmist said, it is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praise to your name, most high. Good. It is pleasant. It is beneficial. And it is appropriate to give thanks to the Lord. Now, you'll recall from a couple of weeks back in part one of this series, THE DEFINITION OF WORSHIP THAT WE ESTABLISHED. WORSHIP IS A RECOGNITION OF WHO GOD IS, COUPLED WITH AN APPROPRIATE RESPONSE OF CELEBRATION, JOY, THANKFULNESS, OR AWE. THE PSALMIST GOT THAT. IN FACT, IN THESE FIRST FEW VERSES, HE REALLY SHOWS US THREE DISTINCT REASONS TO CELEBRATE GOD, OKAY? THE FIRST IS THAT WE CELEBRATE GOD FOR HIS IDENTITY. THE PSALMIST RECOGNIZES GOD FOR WHO HE IS. THAT'S WHY IN VERSE 1 HE REFERS TO HIM AS THE MOST HIGH. IT'S THAT HEBREW WORD EL I MEAN, THINK ABOUT IT THIS WAY. WHEN GOD BECOMES THE MOST HIGH PERSON IN OUR LIVES, IT'S ONLY NATURAL TO WANT TO CELEBRATE HIS PRESENCE IN PUBLIC WORSHIP WITH AN ENERGY THAT WE MIGHT NOT CURRENTLY EXPERIENCE. WHO'S GOD? Now, let's think about that for a sec. He is the supreme being. He is the creator and ruler of all. He is the self-existent one who is perfect in power and goodness and wisdom. He's the Holy Father. He's our shepherd and guide. He's the friend who sticks closer than a brother. He is our redeemer, restorer, rewarder. He's a healer, protector, provider. He is the sovereign king of the universe, ruler over all, and yet loving enough to save me, to save you, to save us all. We recognize and praise him for who he is. So we celebrate God for his identity. We celebrate God also for his character. The psalmist says that God has demonstrated his faithfulness to him at all times. In fact, verse 2 celebrates your faithful love in the morning and your faithfulness at night. In verse 2, that term for faithful love, it's from the Hebrew word kesed. It means, uh, more literally, covenant loyalty. See, a lot of people in the ancient Near East, they were polytheistic, meaning that they believed in, in many different gods. And they considered those gods to be very capricious, meaning that, the, that those gods dealt with people really based on the whims of their changing moods. And so, people never knew whether the gods were going to smile on them or frown on them. Well, the Hebrews knew better. They already knew the one true God, the God of faithful love and faithfulness. In fact, that Hebrew term for faithfulness, it really refers to God's fidelity, his, his steadfastness. So believers don't have to worry that, you know, God's going to wake up in a bad mood and take it out on us. The psalmist would wake up celebrating God's faithful love and his faithfulness, declaring that at at nighttime. So we celebrate God for his identity. We celebrate God for his character, specifically in these verses, his faithfulness. But then the third thing, we celebrate God for his works. We celebrate what the Lord has done, what the Lord is doing. We thank him in advance for the things that he's going to do. Verse 4 says, "'You have made me rejoice, Lord, by what you have done. I will shout for joy because of the works of your hands.'" He is expressing deep gratitude for God's deeds because God has done meaningful things in his life, and so his natural response is to rejoice. The word means to make glad, and the result of that gladness I will shout for joy. There's nothing subdued about this guy's worship, okay? He wasn't afraid to be that guy that shouted, hallelujah, right in the middle of a worship song or or let fly with a hearty amen or a glory right in the middle of the sermon. He worshiped with abandon. He unashamedly rejoiced in the Lord for the works of his hands. Note the plural, works. GOD'S CONTINUALLY INVOLVED IN WHAT WE DO, PARTICULARLY WHEN WE RESPOND TO HIS PRESENCE, WHEN WE WORSHIP HIM, WHEN WE SEEK HIS COUNSEL. AND SO ASK YOURSELF THIS, WHAT HAS GOD DONE IN MY PAST THAT I CAN CELEBRATE? WHAT IS HE DOING RIGHT NOW IN MY LIFE THAT I CAN CELEBRATE? See, when you start to ponder questions like that, I think you're going to realize you're a lot more blessed than, than maybe you thought. Now, Paul told the church at Ephesus in, in Ephesus chapter 1, verse 3, that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. We have all the spiritual blessings we need. Oh, what, What's that? Oh, you're thinking about material blessings. Okay, well, let's talk about that for a second. You see, if you have a roof over your head, a car to drive, a job to go to, and food on your table, did you know that you are already more wealthy than 90% of the rest of the world? You're rich. Talk about blessings. In fact, church, if God never did another thing for you ever for the rest of your life, you could still praise him because he gave you Jesus. He granted you forgiveness and salvation and eternal life. That's something to get excited about. All right, so in these first four verses, we see the psalmist has really shown us that we celebrate God for his identity, his character, his his works. We rejoice in God's faithful love. But here's the second thing I want you to notice from our text. We also recognize God's eternal justice. We recognize God's eternal justice. Look at verse 5. How magnificent are your works, Lord. How profound your thoughts A stupid person does not know. A fool does not understand this. Though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they will be eternally destroyed. But you, Lord, are exalted forever. For indeed, Lord, your enemies, indeed your enemies will perish. All evildoers will be scattered. So in these few verses here, the psalmist really, he's, he summarizes two great eternal realities. First in verse 5, he's still praising God for his works and for his greatness. I have no idea what happened there. I blame Satan. I don't know, sometimes stuff just happens. Um, He's still praising God for his, his works and for his greatness. Then in verse 8, he says that God is exalted forever. That word means to be, to be lifted up on high, to be held in high esteem. Folks, no matter how bad things seem here on earth, I mean, the, the nation on the verge of going broke, some psycho madman invading other countries, mass shootings in schools and shopping malls and churches... Nothing can cancel the magnificence, the, the awesomeness of our God. That is an eternal reality. But see then here in these verses, the psalmist thoughts to, they, they turn to a different eternal reality as he celebrates God's justice. Know what it says in verse six here. A stupid person does not know. A fool does not understand this. That Hebrew phrase, stupid person, it, it, it means like a, a brutish man, a man with, you know with, without sense. He's, he's got no spiritual sensibilities. The psalmist describes him as a fool or a, a simpleton. When it comes to God's majesty and, and his greatness, the fool just, he doesn't get it. Either he doesn't understand the magnificence of God's works and how profound God's thoughts are, or he doesn't understand the fate of the wicked, or maybe both. So what about the fate of the wicked? Look at verse 7. Though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they will be eternally destroyed. Verse 9 says your enemies will perish, all evildoers will be scattered. That term evildoer really just re- refers to people who perpetually are wicked, who continually practice deception. And so the psalmist is saying that through their lies and deceit, these wicked people may actually gain temporary advantage, might even seem to sprout and, and flourish, you know, like grass, but, but it's all short-lived. Psalmist warned that they would be eternally destroyed. A Hebrew phrase that means to be exterminated forever. Okay, that doesn't mean to be exterminated once and that's it. Exterminated forever. So don't misunderstand what this verse is saying. And let me just chase a a tiny theological rabbit here. It's not an argument in favor of what's called annihilationism. Okay, that's the fancy $10 theologian word. Annihilationism is the belief that all unbelievers will not suffer an eternity of suffering in hell, but that their souls will instead be extinguished, annihilated, if you will, after death, and that they'll cease to exist in the afterlife. But that's not what the Bible teaches us about eternity. And so, you know, as we read this, we really have no way of of softening the language or the terminology here. What the psalmist is saying, that those who go through life ignoring God's ways and his works are going to face a a certain disastrous eternity. And verse 6 says they can't even see it. They're so caught up in delusion that they cannot see their own predicament. You know, it kind of it makes me think of the, the kid on the college campus, the 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 frat bro who drinks himself to drunkenness just to be the life of the party. Party makes a fool of himself, but then he goes out later and he causes a car wreck. You know, like those who prize the acceptance of their friends so highly that they will engage engage in, in, in dangerous, foolish, even illegal behaviors, but in the end, they still come to ruin. Now, as we read this, church, it really presents to us you know, kind of an ethical conundrum. Is it ever right to rejoice in judgment and, and the associated suffering of anyone, even the wicked? I mean, doesn't Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount Matthew 5, doesn't he say that we should love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us? Of course, that's the same Jesus who, according to 2 Timothy 4.1, will judge the living and the dead. Well, as Christians who are longing to show compassion, the kind that reflects the grace that that we have all received, we can't forget the innate sense of justice in God's created order. Yes, every human being, even our worst enemy, has inherent worth because he is an image bearer. He is one who has been created in the image of God. Now, folks, if we truly honestly pondered the horrors of hell man we wouldn't wish that on our worst enemies so christians should be mindful of that in the way that we view and treat others bible says that god takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked instead instead he actually invites them to to repent and to live according to ezekiel but i mean just as sure as god's glory is an eternal reality so also is the eternal reality of the fate of the wicked. So, is it wrong for us to rejoice in the suffering of another man? Yes. Is it wrong to give thanks for God's perfect judgment worked out in history and eternity? No, not at all. You see, injustice should always grieve us, but the practice of justice should always give us cause to rejoice because our just God will rule justly. We can rejoice that evil will be forever vanquished. Right will prevail for all of eternity. So, moving on, So far, the psalmist has shown us a couple of ways to celebrate God. We rejoice in God's faithful love. We recognize God's eternal justice. And then here's the third thing I want you to notice. We receive God's transforming power. We receive God's transforming power. Look at verse 10. You have lifted up my horn like that of a wild ox. I have been anointed with the finest oil. My eyes look at my enemies. When evildoers rise against me, my ears hear them. The righteous thrive like a palm tree and grow like a cedar tree in Lebanon. Planted in the house of the Lord, they thrive in the courts of our God. They will still bear fruit in old age, healthy and green, to declare, the Lord is just. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. So, earlier... I spoke very frankly about God's worth really being the sole motivator for our worship. But I also mentioned the fact that there are some natural byproducts of our sincere worship. Let's expand that thought a little bit. What are some of the benefits to us, his children, his worshipers, of celebrating God's identity, celebrating God's character, celebrating God's works, Well, in verses 10 and following, the psalmist begins to note some specific acts that he has done for him, that he will do for his followers, for those who worship him. Uh, For example, we see in verse 10 that we celebrate God for his strength. We celebrate God for his strength, strength imparted to us. First, he acknowledged that the Lord had lifted up his horn like that of a wild ox. So that expression, lifted up his horn, is actually an expression of victory from God. Now, the imagery of the horn here doesn't come from the ram's horn, the type that's used to, you know, kind of like a trumpet, but from a bull's horn. You know, the, the image may actually be of two bulls, you know, fighting and, you know, how they lock horns together. So the horn symbolizes strength or victory. In this case, strength supplied to the psalmist by God. And so the psalmist benefited from God's strengthening presence. Also, it says you know, being anointed with oil, a symbol of being dedicated for a purpose, usually a sacred purpose. So for the psalmist, anointing is it's a symbol of satisfaction, I'm sorry, sanctification. Well, it's, it's very satisfying too, but satisfaction is not the word I was looking for. In fact, uh, I can't get no satisfaction there because that's not the right word. <laughs> I'm glad you got that, John Wirt. Um, I have a weird sense of humor sometimes. It's a symbol of sanctification and it speaks to God's empowerment upon the psalmist's life and by extension, our lives. But then in verses 12 and 13, the psalmist wrote, the righteous thrive, like a a palm tree, and grow like a cedar tree in Lebanon. Planted in the house of the Lord, they thrive in the courts of our God. So the psalmist is speaking poetically here. He uses the palm tree and a cedar tree to symbolize how those who worship God thrive. Now, Lebanon, he mentioned specifically, it was known for its its magnificent cedar trees, legendary for the height, for their strength. I mean, they were used in the building of palaces for King David and and King Solomon, also in the building of the temple. But because these were both beautiful and durable, they serve as a symbol of God's blessing and his strength. In verse 13, the psalmist says that these trees, remember the trees represent the righteous people these righteous people were planted in the house of the Lord. It's a reference to the temple-based worship system that the Hebrews celebrated in, in that culture and day. Worshippers thrive there, he says. Thrive meaning to, to bud, to sprout, to, to flourish. So what we're seeing in this psalm is that the durability of the tree is contrasted with the vulnerability of the, grass wicked people sprout like grass but righteous people thrive like trees in short God will empower the righteous those who are planted in the house of the Lord will be strengthened will thrive for 15 years Christy and I lived in Moore, Oklahoma it's a it's a South Oklahoma City suburb I can still remember what we were doing the morning of April 19th, 1995, Uh, a fateful day for sure. But you know, in in downtown Oklahoma City, there is a sprawling, shade-bearing, nearly 100-year-old American elm tree. It's a huge tourist attraction. Uh, People go there, they post for pictures beneath the tree. Arborists uh, very carefully protect it. Its image adorns posters and people's letterheads. and, And the city really treasures this tree, but not because of its appearance, but rather because of its endurance. You see, that tree weathered the Oklahoma City bombing. Timothy McVeigh parked his his death-laden trucks only yards away from it, and his malice killed 168 people and wounded 850 more and destroyed the Murrah Federal Building, and it buried that tree in rubble. So nobody expected this tree to survive. No one gave a thought to that dusty branch-stripped tree. But then something happened it began to bud. Sprouts pressed through damaged bark. Green leaves pushed away gray soot. Life arose from this, from this acre of death. And people took notice. And that tree really modeled the resilience that the victims desired for themselves. And so they named it the survivor tree. Now, you see, church, every Christian whose faith is firmly planted in that soil of God's righteousness and his faithfulness, every Christian who does that stands just like that 100-year-old survivor tree. But you see, when our roots are firmly entrenched in him, we not only survive, we thrive Planted in the house of the Lord, they thrive in the courts of our God, the psalmist said. And then in verse 14, he also notes that righteous people will, will bear fruit in old age. That's an encouragement to me. You know, frequently people think of the prime of your life being in that season from your late teens, probably to about your mid 30s. Actually, there was the results of a study that came out early last year that revealed that people really don't begin to hit their creative peak until they're in their 60s. i got something to look forward to, y'all. But see, once people start having gray hairs, which actually in the Hebrew, that's actually one of the definitions of old age, they're often considered past their prime, but the psalmist disagreed. The righteous still had a lot to contribute to the well-being of society because of their relationship with the Lord they're strengthened, they're fruitful because they're planted in the house of the Lord. They're planted securely in the soil of faith. God is their rock. God is their strength. Now, speaking of security and strength, not only do we celebrate God for his strength, but but here's another byproduct of our worship. We celebrate God for his security Look at verse 11. My eyes look at my enemies. When evildoers rise against me, my ears hear them. Because his faith was in God, the psalmist had complete assurance, even when he was surrounded by his enemies. When verse 11 says that he could could look on them, look down on them, I mean, it, it literally means that he could regard their final outcome. Also, his ears hear evildoers when they rise against him. In the Hebrew, the idea really seems to to indicate security in the face of an all-out assault. The psalmist took refuge in the God that he worshiped. God guaranteed the defeat of his enemies. Because the psalmist and and others celebrated God's presence and, and his works through vibrant worship, they experienced blessings of both strength and security throughout their lives, including... THEIR GOLDEN YEARS. AND YET THIS PROLONGED FRUITFULNESS, THAT WASN'T INTENDED TO MERELY BE A BENEFIT. GOD REALLY INTENDED IT AS AN EMPOWERMENT. YES, WE GET BLESSED. HE STRENGTHENS US. WE'RE MORE SECURE. HE EMPOWERS US. BUT HE EMPOWERS US FOR A PURPOSE. THAT PURPOSE IS NOT TO JUST SIT ON OUR HANDS AND DO NOTHING TO SERVE THE CAUSE OF CHRIST. But because of our trust in God, we can receive his transforming power. Church, in Psalm 92, we've seen that with the psalmist, we can rejoice in God's faithful love. We celebrate God for who he is, for what he's done. And because he's righteous, we recognize God's eternal justice. But let me ask you, what reasons in your own life can you give for celebrating God? I mean, we've already seen some of the benefits, the, the byproducts of worshiping God. And as natural byproducts of our faith in Him, our worship of Him, we're able to celebrate his, his strength, the security that He gives us. You see, all of that comes back to a simple truth. It all begins by knowing Him him, by focusing on him, not ourselves. See, our worship is actually hindered if we don't have a foundational knowledge of his character, of his identity, of his faithfulness, of his works. So here's a hard question. Have you just been, like that 50% we talked about earlier, just been going through the motions when it comes to worship? Maybe you need a little help on how to make your your worship here on Sunday mornings, make it more positive. And when you come to church here at Beach Street, First Baptist Church, at 6th and Beach, at 1045, what can you do to make this more positive, more fruitful? Let me share a few points with you. Column, column, counsel, advice, life points, whatever. Actually, I took these from Shane Pruitt. He's a guy that works with the North American Mission Board. But several practical things I would share when it comes to preparing for worship corporately on Sunday mornings, pray before you get there. Pray. Ask God to speak to you. Ask Him to speak to you, whether it's through the the music that we sing, whether it's the teaching of your life group uh, teacher, whether it's what we study together as a body of Christ from the Bible in our worship services, pray. Keep your heart and mind open and ask God to speak to you. Okay, now here's another idea. Listen to worship music on the way, or even better yet, as you're getting ready on Sunday mornings. That way you're already in a mindset of worship before you even arrive. Third thing, take your Bible with you. Bring your Bible. Okay, don't rely on information on the screens or whatever. Bring your Bible. That way when I says, hey, when I say, you know, look at verse 10 with me. You can actually look at verse 10 because we're studying the word together. Bring your Bible. Take notes. Okay? That's what this is for, to help you to take notes. Now, some of you are great note takers. You don't need this. For you, this is probably just a crutch, but that's why you see these positioned at all of the entrances to the sanctuary, to help you to take notes. You see, according to the pyramid of learning, I believe it's 30% of everything that you take notes on, everything you write, you retain you retain 50% of what you discuss with others, uh, 70% of what you turn around and actually do in response to what you've heard. 90% of it you retain if you'll turn around and teach that to other people. But 30% of it you retain if you take notes. So take notes. Oh, here's another one. (laughs) Be on time. (laughs) I know that's very unbaptist-like. We think if we're five minutes late, we're still on time. No, be on time. Now, I'm speaking even more sternly with people who serve in positions of leadership. Yeah, if you're supposed to be here at a certain time, be here at a certain time. But when it comes to our worship, be on time. Okay, don't rob yourself of, the, of uh, being there for the whole thing. Be on time. All right, now here's a good one. And I know that Annika will uh, heartily agree with me on this one. Sing loudly like you mean it. PRAISE THEM WHEN YOU FEEL LIKE IT. PRAISE THEM WHEN YOU DON'T FEEL LIKE IT. PRAISE THEM UNTIL YOU FEEL LIKE IT. SING LOUDLY. Like, IN FACT, WHEN I WAS COMING UP WITH THIS, IT MADE ME THINK OF ELF. YOU KNOW, THE, the SECRET of, OF SPREADING CHRISTMAS cheer IS SINGING LOUD FOR ALL TO HEAR. WELL, MAYBE THERE'S SOME TRUTH IN THAT. I DON'T KNOW. BUT SING LOUDLY LIKE YOU MEAN IT. AND THEN HERE'S THE LAST ONE. EXPECT GOD TO MOVE. Come here with a heart and mind open to God with a sense of expectation that his spirit is gonna move, that God is going to do great things in our midst. And I guarantee you, if all of you, if all of us together collectively as the body of Christ at Beach Street First Baptist Church, if we'll come here every week expecting God to do great things, he's gonna do great things. Friend, what's holding you back? What's holding you back from truly recognizing God's goodness and responding appropriately with a demonstration of thankfulness or celebration or joy or awe? Make your love for Him the number one factor that motivates your worship. Thanks for listening to today's message. If you'd like to have a personal relationship with God, it's pretty simple. It's repent, believe, and receive. We acknowledge that we're all sinners who fall short, and we repent. That word means to change your mind about the way you've been living. Then you choose to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for you, and you receive by faith God's gift of forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. If you don't have a church home, we'd love to have you join us at Beach Street. Small group Bible study begins at 9.30 on Sundays, followed by worship at 10.45. There's a midweek Bible study on Wednesdays at 6. You'll find us at the corner of 6th and Beach Street in downtown Texarkana. And for more info, visit our website at beachstreetfbc.org.